Welcome to the Montana Torch Talk podcast. In the third episode, we're sitting down with Leslie Heiner, Vice President of Legal Affairs for EdChoice. Leslie and I talk a little bit about our experience nationally advocating for educational opportunity, some policy prescriptions for Montana, common misconceptions about school choice, and what's going on nationally in the school choice movement. Hey everyone, David Herbst here with Americans for Prosperity Montana. I'm here with Leslie Heiner, Vice President of Legal Affairs with EdChoice. Thanks for coming on and uh, talking with me, Leslie. Thank you. Uh, we have been in Montana, brought up Leslie uh, from Illinois. Indiana. Indiana, sorry. Yes. From Indiana uh, to talk a little bit with our legislators, talk to our activists, talk to our community uh, about educational freedom and education opportunity and school choice. And we were really excited this week to, we had a great reception, uh, a rally at the Capitol, lots of legislative meetings and a Capitol briefing uh, that Leslie was critical in just helping us build policy expertise amongst our community and amongst our legislators to engage in these issues. So here with Leslie to talk a little school choice. Thanks for coming, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's a privilege to be here, <laughs> thank you. So um, how did you get involved in educational choice? Well, I'm a lawyer, and as a young lawyer, I had a school choice case. Now, when it first came to me, I didn't think that it was a school choice case, and I didn't know anything about school choice. Mm. Of course, that was back in 1986. Mm. And a mother came in, and her uh, daughter had been going to a little school of their family's choice. It was their, they went to an evangelical church. Mm. The church had a little school. Daughter had attended their for um, first grade through eighth grade, and she was about to enter high school. Um, very good school, everything was great, except the parents divorced. Mm. And after they divorced, the father had a falling out with the church. So suddenly he didn't want his daughter to go to that church's school anymore. And that's what the litigation was about. Well, as it turns out, I had to do a whole lot of research about education and the state of education and what would happen if that child had to leave her, the school of her faith, and go to the local public school where she was zoned. It was an eye-opening experience. Mm. It was just two years after the big national report, A Nation at Risk, Mm. was released. So I learned that there were some tremendous challenges in public education and that at that time, mm-hmm. uh, very serious challenges. So I understood the concern of her, of her mother. Mm-hmm. Well, we had a five-day trial. <laughs> and in this five-day trial, the only question was this. Who is the proper person or entity to decide mm-hmm. where and how a child should be educated? Mm-hmm. That was the question. The ruling in that case came down about 3, 3.30 in the afternoon, and we won. Mm. <laughs> Very happy to report. And, of course, as a young lawyer, I was thrilled. Yeah. So when I went home that afternoon, I decided to put my feet up, have a glass of wine, watch the evening news. The first story on the evening news was about a school. And when kids were boarding the bus that day to go home, they got into an argument. And they started shooting each other. Well, it just so happens. That is the school that my client's daughter would have attended the very next day had I lost that case. So a couple things became really clear to me. That what I learned about the state of education in the country at the time was real. 
uh, tremendous challenges there as we continue to have today, uh, sad to say. But I also learned um, perhaps the most important lesson, which is parents know their children and what they need better than anyone else. Mm. And what I've learned over the years is it really doesn't matter if that parent is well-educated, um, has a great job, or if that parent is woefully undereducated and homeless. Mm -hmm. A parent still knows what's best for their own children and will fight to, to do what's right for their own children. Mm. Uh, so that was an important lesson that I learned. Wow. And after that experience, I, I just could never let go of that thought, who should decide? And why should anyone other than a parent decide how a child is educated? Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's stuck with me all these years. Mm. So is that how we define school choice, is just parental empowerment to decide whether a student goes to school? Uh, that is the biggest part of it, absolutely. Uh, the, the challenges that, that parents have um, are when they're in a, a public school district and uh, chances are they specifically chose that public school district mm -hmm. to, to live so their children could go to school there. Um, I did the same with my children. We specifically moved into an area so our kids could go to a, a really great public elementary school. However, uh, oftentimes somewhere along the line, uh, something happens. Uh, maybe the child develops a, a learning disability, or maybe the child um, in growing up is uncomfortable in a school that's really big and so retreats and becomes very isolated, or the child is in a really small school and just feels oppressed being there. And, and in either one of those situations, learning stops. Very difficult for a child it's very difficult for any of us to mm -hmm. learn mm -hmm. if we're not comfortable and engaged. Mm -hmm. it, it's just a simple human condition. Mm -hmm. uh, so then it, it really begs the question, what do you do? What do you do if your child is in a situation, even if it's a great school for every other child, yeah. if it's not great for your child, what do you do? And it's the parent who needs to be empowered to be able to do something about it. That's right. That's right. So absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's not necessarily, if I understand you right, it's not necessarily just leaving the whole school. Maybe it's just leaving and getting an extra class or getting tutoring or doing just that one extra thing or maybe one thing instead of another thing, right? Today, there are a variety of options. Mm. Yes, yes. Things are getting better in the education field, actually. Mm. So, um, so for those that don't know, what is EdChoice and what, is, what role do you play in advancing these ideas and um, uh, doing what you do to advance ed educational opportunity? Well, EdChoice, we're a national, um, we're a national nonprofit. Mm -hmm. We were originally founded in 1996 by Milton Friedman and his wife, Rose. Mm -hmm. And even though Milton Friedman was an internationally known economist, free market economist, uh, credited with saving the free market in, in the United States back in the 70s, when they started thinking about their own retirement and their own legacy, they decided that they needed to form a foundation that was dedicated to education. 
Now, Melton is the one who first came up with the idea for vouchers, mm. that the funding of education should be placed in the hands of parents, mm -hmm. and the parents should choose any option, public, mm -hmm. private, homeschooling, whatever is right for the child, the parent would have that opportunity. And so they created our organization, which was originally named the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. Um, in the last couple of years, we've done some rebranding at, at, at their, uh, their request, uh, so we could go broader with the idea. So this is how it happened that a worldwide known economist set up a nonprofit for education mm -hmm. instead of economics yeah. or, or anything yeah. else. They reasoned very simply this. If children are not educated fully and properly, then when they become adults, they won't know what a free market is. Mm -hmm. They won't understand how to make a free market work. Mm -hmm. So the first step for all of our freedoms is that opportunity to learn. Mm. <laughs> that has to come That's first. Right. That's right. It must come first. Mm. That's why two economists <laughs> set up an education foundation. Yeah. Well, and, and we're very glad that they did. Yeah. Well, and I can't encourage viewers enough to, to watch Free to Choose. Yes. The PBS documentary yes. that he did. And uh, th there's actually an episode on education reform, and it is amazing, mm -hmm. and it explains a lot about school choice, although it's evolved so much since then. It so has. there's a whole range. So what's the most exciting thing happening in school choice right now across the country? I think there are a couple things that are very exciting. Mm. Uh, one thing is, as I had mentioned earlier, there, there are a lot of opportunities in education right now. Things are beginning to change. Uh, we're seeing a great amount of innovation. So you mentioned the opportunity for parents to choose courses, and that really is the new frontier. Arizona was the first state to adopt an education savings account. And in that system, the funding of education is placed into, the money is placed into an account mm -hmm. for the parent's use to purchase educational services. Mm -hmm. Now the parent could use that funding for private school tuition. That would be fine. Mm. Or the parent could use the funding for tuition and uh, paying for other classes, mm -hmm. uh, paying for tutoring, paying for educational services, or the parent could not pay tuition per se mm -hmm. at any particular school, but rather purchase classes from a variety of different resources, mm -hmm. public schools, charter schools, magnet schools, private schools, religious or secular uh, tutoring services, all kinds of mentoring mm -hmm. services, digital classes, um, anything that the child needs. It's much more flexible that way. It is much more flexible. And the beauty in that is, is twofold. On the one hand, we see a lot of people who are in the education field who are suddenly, they feel free to create new opportunities for learning. Mm. This is the free market at work, yeah, right? Right, right? So there are a lot of new entrepreneurs in the yeah. education space who are creating different types of classes to meet different types of learning mm -hmm. needs, and these are becoming available to parents and their, and their children. We are also seeing an invigoration of parents. Mm. The parents love this idea. Mm. They 
and I have to say that there's some people who are are skeptical that parents would understand how to make that work. If you've never done that before, maybe it's going to be a little scary to do all this. No, but that's not the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, parents are very intuitive about this. Mm. Uh, and to be honest with you, I I wasn't quite sure that that would happen myself. I, you know, this is new. We weren't sure how parents would, would respond to this. Mm. Uh, but I've had numerous parents who have approached me to say, now let me get this straight. With this funding, I can do this and this and this and this and this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> parents already have a laundry list mm-hmm. of what they need for their children. And this program, this education savings account, allows them the flexibility and the opportunity and the funding to be able to access what their children need. Uh, that's that's really invigorating for parents. Yeah, so it's like a buffet of educational options as opposed to just getting what, you, what you're given. Right? It is, right. and parents and children alike, they, they just love it. Mm. So what, what can Montana learn from other states uh, with experience with school choice? Because we're behind the curve. Of course, we right. got our tax credit scholarship program that might go to the U.S. Supreme Court here soon. That's correct. Uh, you're, you're part of that case, correct? Yes, yes, and, that's right. And I would love to download on that. But first, <laughs> what is the uh, what's, what can Montana learn from other states' experience with school choice so far? I think the most important thing for Montana um, to understand is that school choice opens up opportunities. Mm. This is what we're seeing across the country. You'll see a state that may adopt a voucher program, an ESA, a tax credit scholarship program, but then they they do another one. Mm. Uh, so there are several states that may have a voucher, a tax credit scholarship, um, charter schools, mm-hmm. uh, an ESA, a whole variety of different ways that parents can use to option or to access education at educational options. Uh, in Ohio, for example, they have five different voucher programs, mm. but, but each one serves a different, a different need. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not just about getting a school choice program. Mm. That's, that's limited thinking. Yeah. But instead, the thinking should be much broader than that. Mm to envision all of the different possibilities first that are available, uh, but also to take a hard look at kids here in Montana and what are the types of things that they need. So for example, um, you have a lot of your school districts that are very rural school districts. Mm -hmm. Now in those areas, um, much like rural areas across the country, parents would really like to see their kids stay home on the farm, on the ranch, stay in that rural community, continue to build that rural community. Uh, But the resources they may need uh, to be able to do that may not be available currently. Mm -hmm. Well, they could be available. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They could be available if they had the funding opportunities Mm -hmm. um, through these school choice programs. They could be. For example, with an ESA, uh, those families could access a online service or something like that to That's right. to fund for their homeschooling or for a, like a local co-op or something like that if the public school isn't working out. Is that, is that kind of what you're going for? Uh, that's true. Yeah. Uh, but it, it may also be that the, that the local public school is 
working out, but maybe doesn't have all of the different options that sure. that any child might need or right. might want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in today's economy, I think people in business are finding that there's a whole different variety of skills mm-hmm. that are necessary in business. Um, a lot of technical skills that are now really necessary to thrive in business that are not part of a traditional uh, school curriculum. Yeah. Uh, so we could task our public schools to create new programs with technical mm-hmm. skills. Um, but frankly, that's asking a lot mm-hmm. uh, of our public schools. With limited um, resources, with, with the way exactly. PILT goes, with the way so many other conditions are. Right. It's, it's, it's that scarcity that's introduced because of you know the fact that it's funded by taxes. And right. if, if we change the funding mechanism, if we empower the parents mm-hmm. to be able to shop in a market, we can economize better and hopefully create the incentives for more resources for students in rural areas. Uh, that's exactly right, yeah. and and that's and we see that happening mm. in states that have these these programs. Mm. It also allows a public school to remain focused on their core mission, mm-hmm. and we should allow them to do that. Mm. That's that's their expertise. Yeah. Let's. Let's create a situation where they can do that, but the students can also access additional services as they need them. It seems especially important for the tails, right? For both your very gifted students and your kids are struggling, right? So if you're very gifted, you can take the Stanford University robotics course online or something like that and, and get that extra something that you're needing to stay interested in education when you're ahead of the curve. That's right. Uh, one of the things that I hear a lot about school choice is, you know, what what, 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 there, people have this idea that a second school in Weibo or Yak, mm-hmm. Montana or right. some remote place isn't feasible, so therefore we shouldn't have school choice. What, how would you respond to that sort of argument? Um, it, it's true that in some places the, uh, the local public school may be the number one employer in the area. That um, We see that in various places as well. Uh, but nonetheless, there, there are a couple things here. First, if the public school in a particular area is in fact serving all the needs for that particular area, and you may find that where um, where the population is really small, that it's possible. Um, however, <laughs> it's often the case that because the funding for education is going directly from the state to the school, then parents don't have much of a say in, in what's happening mm-hmm. there. And that can become a problem. Mm. Depends on who's at the school, who's leading the school, who's the principal, who's the superintendent, etc. cetera. Uh, so sometimes people find themselves in a bad situation where the school is going forward in ways that parents don't like, but they have virtually no power to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if the funding is going to the parents first, and the parents make the choice of the school... Just that flip of the money being in the hands of the parents first rather than being in the hands of the school first shifts the balance of power. Mm -hmm. So those who are running the school understand the parents have the power. Mm -hmm. The parents have the authority. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how the communication changes when when that happens. Uh, Suddenly, everyone at the school wants to know what the parents think. Mm Is this what is your child learning? Is this is this good for you? What else can we do for you? Uh, you, you shift from a uh, authoritarian model to a to a much more collaborative 
model between the school and the parents. And that's really when good things begin to happen for the children. Mm. So even if another school is introduced, you change the incentives Absolutely. so that the public school does better. Even, even if that's no right. students leave the public school or a yes. very small minority do, maybe they go and they go homeschool when they wouldn't otherwise. But we don't really know that because kids can homeschool right now. So right. what's always been interesting to me is there's just a gap in the idea of market discovery. Mm -hmm. There's just that place where yes. we don't know if we don't give people the option. Right. And that seems true for so many things. We don't know if someone's going to choose, you know, Colgate or some other brand of toothpaste until we have mm -hmm. two brands of toothpaste. That's why That's right. that That's right. mode of thinking of like, let's have a monopoly just doesn't work with toothpaste. So right. therefore, we should have we, the, the the broader choices we have. The more we can discover about what preferences people have. That's right. And yeah. monopolies, wherever you find monopolies, they always fail. Mm. If if there is one lesson that we have all learned over many many years, it it's that monopolies always fail. Mm. And currently, in our public education system, there is a, a monopoly. Mm. Now, back in 1955, when Milton Friedman first came up with the idea of shifting the funding from the institution directly to the parents to pay for education, he made a prediction. He predicted that if the method that we used for funding education that was in place in 1955, if we continued funding education that way, that over time the result would be mediocrity. Well, it turns out we're still funding education the same way that we funded it then. And there are a lot of places in this country where we wish that the schools would be mediocre because that would be better than they are. This prediction of Milton um, of the mediocrity has really come to full fruition, sadly enough. The time is now to make changes. We know, we know a couple things. We know how to fund education differently, so we're empowering parents, which is great for students. Mm -hmm. um, we know how to educate children, and I mean any child with any kind of challenges, to a level where that child can learn and be a successful adult. We know these things. There are no real limits at this point. Mm -hmm. The innovation is just, it, it's, it's wonderful. It's happening across the country. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, ideas are blossoming um, in a very entrepreneurial spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing in education now, and it's all for the good. It's all for the betterment of, of kids and their opportunities for learning. So now is the time. Mm -hmm. it, it's really, we've waited too long. Uh, frankly, to change education for the better for our students. Um, and, and now we just need to get with it. Mm, I, I love it. So uh, the tax credit scholarship program in Montana, could you give a, yes. our viewers a download if they don't know what it is and, of course, the update on where it's at in the courts? Yeah, I'd be happy to. The tax credit scholarship program here um, is, a, is a mechanism where a, um, a nonprofit – is formed for the purpose of giving scholarships to kids. Individuals and uh, <clears throat> corporations could give money into that nonprofit to help fund the scholarships. Mm -hmm. So this is where the money comes from into the nonprofit to be able to give scholarships to kids. For those donors who contribute to that organization, uh, they can get a tax credit for their contribution. And the thinking behind that is simple. For those 
for those people who are putting money into a nonprofit to give scholarships to kids, they're doing something that is a public good. And, and the legislature recognizes that if you are willing to contribute your own money to help someone else's child get a good education, uh, you are contributing to that public good. And that's the reason why then the state will tax you a little bit less mm -hmm. because you are voluntarily making that choice. Mm -hmm. Now, everything that I've just said is in fact true, however. Uh, your Montana Supreme Court issued a ruling that seems to have very little to do with the actual tax credit scholarship program here. Mm -hmm. They ruled it was unconstitutional. They interpreted the tax implications uh, completely upside down, completely differently from every other state in the country that mm -hmm. has litigated these uh, these programs. Uh, they also made rulings on tax policy that go against 40 to 50 years worth of tax policy that's been settled in the U.S. tax courts and state courts and federal courts across the country. This is a decision that needs to be overturned. Um, in addition, there is a religious liberty element to this as well, where the court um, was not fond of the idea that uh, that a parent could send their child to a religious school. Mm -hmm. That violates the First Amendment rights of, of every parent in Montana. Mm -hmm. So there will be an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court to take this case um, and help the people of Montana. Now, the Institute for Justice, um, they are... They're wonderful people. They're Amazing. they're wonderful lawyers yeah. uh, who who will come into a state and they they litigate the school choice cases, and at Ed Choice and for me in particular because I'm the lawyer there, uh, I work very closely with the Institute for Justice and mm. and we've been working together for for many many years. Um, that's a great privilege. Mm. I'm I'm quick to note that. Uh, so we are um, working together to make sure that in the appeal up to the U.S. Supreme Court that we cover all of the issues thoroughly. And Montanans should know also that there are others across the country um, who are very sympathetic to the situation here in Montana. Um, I had a friend in Ohio who asked about the case and is intending to file an amicus brief in support here. Mm. And I, I'm, I think we'll see many others. Beckett Law also filed an amicus brief at the, at the Montana Supreme Court level. I'm sure that they'll be back. Mm. Um, so take heart. Mm. <laughs> take heart that there are plenty of people across the country who for all these years have been working with school choice. They've seen the benefits of it firsthand. They're stepping up mm. to help Montana. Mm. That's awesome. So, yeah, um, yeah I, 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 that's it. I mean, any other last words for our <laughs> viewers and listeners on school choice and educational opportunity? Yes, I think people should be should be really happy to be here in Montana. Mm. One thing that I've noticed that's that's just sort of jumped out at me while I've been here is first an openness of people to to listen to learn um, to want to know more about education and and what they can do to make things better for kids here in Montana 
Um, and there's some innovative ideas also that I've heard from some of the legislators that we've met and uh, from your superintendent, Elsie uh, Carnson as well. It, that kind of innovative thinking is first necessary to achieve well, what we all want for our kids. Mm -hmm. We all want those opportunities for kids to be able to learn at their highest capacity. And, and so I, I think people should be happy here in Montana that you have people who are thinking in this kind of way that's innovative, but also, and this is the priority, is focused on each child and that child's opportunity to learn at the highest level, whatever mm -hmm. that is, mm -hmm so that the children of today, who will be the leaders of tomorrow, will be well-educated leaders of tomorrow, and they'll have that freedom to really lead Montana in the way that Montanas choose. Mm, that's well, Leslie, uh, this has been uh, Leslie Heiner, Vice President of Legal Affairs with EdChoice. Leslie, thanks for coming on and chatting with me. Oh, thank you. It's Appreciate been a privilege. It. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Big Sky Torch Time podcast. You can find us online at americansforprosperity.org. Check us out on Facebook at Americans for Prosperity Montana, AFP Montana on Twitter.